Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed faith. Welcome to the third night of Lightning in the Fog, the Heartbeat and Hurdles of the Reformed Faith. The last two weeks, we, the first week we talked about terminology and looked at the different words, what does Reformed mean, Protestant, all those sort of things, Evangelical in that original sense back in the time of the Reformation 500 years ago. It meant salvation is just by grace through faith. And one of the handouts I've given you this week, thanks to Lynn Greenlee, it's the excerpt of Martin Luther's argument of the epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians. In other words, Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians, and this is in his kind of summary of what's the point of the book of Galatians. And this is really how he came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and finally gave up trusting in his own works having always suspected it would never be enough anyway, and putting his trust uh, fully in Christ. And he talks in this passage, I'll, I'll let you read it at another time, but this, this kind of captures the heart of the original thing that was going on in the Reformation. In terms of, in what does your standing before God consist? What does it rest on? And for years and years and for centuries, people had been trying to work their way to heaven and he discovered that the Bible really teaches you just can't do that. It would just never be enough. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect. And uh, none of us has lived up to that. And so this talks about how our, our righteousness isn't our righteousness. It was something that was given to us uh, by God that comes to us by grace through faith. And uh, that's why it's so complete and so sure, because it's completely intact. Second uh, Corinthians 5, at the end of the, uh, of the chapter, I think it's verse 21, says, God made him who knew no sin, who would that be? Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, like a big switch. So Jesus went to the cross disguised as you and me and with our record and died and paid the full penalty of it. And you, then you think, well, if that's not all of us who he's disguised as, he looks, I mean, spiritually he was, had our sins, so he looked spiritually like us. You think, well, who is this other person over here? Well, that is us, but now we're clothed in Jesus Christ. And God looks at us, because of Jesus, as though we'd never sinned. And that is the seed out of which the whole Reformation grew. So, we want to look at a little bit of the history again, just to kind of bring us up to date. Last week, we flew through 15 centuries in about 15 minutes. This week, we really want to look, try to look at an overview of all the main things they came up with when they went back to the Bible and says, well, what if we just had the Bible and no traditions? What would everything look like? So I'm going to try to cover everything today on all of that. You know, one of the questions I asked you the first week was, what, uh, what is Reformed theology? It was the first question. The second question I asked you was, what problems or difficulties do you have with Reformed theology? And the thought hit me today, if you don't have any difficulties with Reformed theology or you never have, then you never knew what it was. I want you to think back for a minute when you were a child 
when you first found out about human sexuality, your first thought was, you must be kidding. I mean, when you really found out, you know, I, I remember more telling, you know, my sons and stuff like that, and they just looked at me in disbelief, like, this can't be, you know, say it's not so, Paul. And Reformed theology is sort of like that also. At first glance, it's like, you're kidding. The thing that Reformed theology has going for it is, it's just what the Bible says. So, I mean, you know, uh, and uh, human sexuality isn't uh, either good or bad because of what it is or what it isn't. It's just what it is. God made it. And even though as a child you don't have what you need to fully understand it or appreciate it or put it in its context, eventually you do understand it in the same way with biblical theology. Now, I just want to do a little bit of an overview here. Here we had, this is just uh, 150 years is pretty much when the Reformation is dated. Starting with Martin Luther, 1517, tacking on the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg. And they usually date the end of the Reformation to the Peace of Westphalia after the Thirty Years' War, where the Catholics and the Protestants in Germany were fighting because they had the idea that, well, we've got to be either one or the other. And they finally decided, well, we can be both. It's sort of like Israel and Palestine right now, sort of a kind of a stalemate, but let's, let's quit killing each other over this. And in this first uh, 50 years was where they really were studying the Bible and reading the Bible and trying to decide what it says. And uh, that's one of the things we want to talk about today. And at the end of, right around the end of this time, right about 1646 is when the Westminster Confession of Faith was written. So it was almost, it was over a hundred years after Martin Luther got going with the Reformation and Calvin and all of that. And the Westminster Confession of Faith was written where? What country? Well, okay, Westminster Cathedral in Switzerland, right? No, in London, in England. Okay, all right. So it was a, they'd, they'd been thinking about it a pretty good while by the time we get to the, our, what do we call our Constitution or our standards, the, the Confession of Faith, and uh, our catechisms, which are question and answer, kind of a teaching tool to go along with it. Well... I have uh, your second page on there. This is the 17th century. It's always funny how it's the 1600s is the 17th century. You'd think we would have figured out a way to not have that be that way. But anyway, the, during the 1600s, a lot was going on. You've got, that's when the, the big time of the Puritans was. That's in the middle of that was when the Westminster documents were written. That was when, let's see, who would you have heard of? John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, Shakespeare, you've heard of him, Francis Bacon. That's when Jamestown was founded, Plymouth was founded. That's when Galileo and Kepler and uh, Isaac Newton was born, the year before they started writing the Westminster Confession. So it's all kind of that, that century. And uh, what's the significance of Westminster Abbey, where they got together to write out uh, the Confession? It's older than that. It's a thousand years old. Back with the Norman Conquest, 1066, you know, William the Conqueror and all that crosses the English Channel from the northern part of France and takes over all of England. And you remember the Robin Hood movies and those Saxon dogs and the Norman Conquerors and all this kind of stuff? Well, that was all around that period of time when there was that shift of power. And that's also why the English language has twice as many vocabulary words as any other language because it's a mix of English and in French. But anyway, uh, German and French background. So back at a thousand years ago, it was a, it was a monastery. 
And then after that, it was eventually just turned into a church. So that's, that's why they call it Abbey, okay? Westminster Abbey. And the most interesting thing about Westminster Abbey is every British monarch has been crowned in Westminster Abbey, except for two, and I don't remember which two. But over a thousand years, that's where all the British monarchs have been crowned. So a very important place. And at this point, this was this confession got written in this little window here when there was this fight with the king and the parliament, and the parliament was pretty much, uh, the, the Puritans had gotten control of it. And so Charles I tried to dissolve it, and they said, no, we're not going. You called us, and we're going to meet. And that's when the English Civil War started, because both the king and the parliament got an army and said, well, we'll see about that. So they were seen about that until they finally beheaded Charles six years later. So, but the parliament says, we want to go ahead and really reform the Church of England, and let's get all the people that really, really study the Bible a lot, all these ministers and everything, they called them divines back then, not because they were divine, that was just the, the old English term for theologian. And they got 121 guys together, and then 20 from the House of Commons, and 10 from the House of Lords, and six guys came down from Scotland, and they met for a little over five years and came up with the documents that we have, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if I don't get off of that, we'll stay on that one the whole time. So let's, let's get on to, let's see, what did they come up with? What, we want to look at this overview. And like I said, I'm not, I can't explain everything. I can't, and now I can't, also can't give you all the arguments for it. I'm going to probably provoke more questions, you know, but that's okay. Maybe then you'll read and study and have a good time. So let's take a look at this. Let's look at what, as they went to the Bible, went back to the Bible, and said, if we only had the Bible and no traditions, what would each area look like? Uh, what would we do as far as the uh, Scripture? And, and you might want to just jot stuff in here so that you'll understand my terms. I used uh, some of the official terms, which are always kind of clunky, and you think, well, what does that mean? Why don't they just say it in plain English? Well, you can write the plain English underneath it. But when we talk about Revelation, we're just talking about the Bible. You know, what, where do we, what's our source of truth? And the Reformed distinctive was that the Scripture is completely sufficient, as opposed to seeking new revelation through dreams, visions, prophecies, or listening to traditions. That our source of truth, the way we're going to decide how to do Christianity, how to do a worship service, how to baptize, all of these kind of things, our first question is, what does the Bible say? Now, there are other Christian groups that would say, well, this is what God said yesterday. We want to see what God says today. So let's all hold hands and pray and see if God says anything to anybody. But that's just not the reform way to do it. You know, I mean, we feel like in Hebrews it says, in these last days he has spoken to us through his son, through Jesus Christ. And we feel that, that in Jesus Christ the final revelation of God was given. That doesn't mean that God doesn't lead you in different ways and, and move you and speak to you in a, in a guidance kind of a way, in an illuminatory way, but not in a revelatory way that you say, oh, yesterday God told me that peanut butter is sin, and so I'm writing all of the Bible places so that they will put that right after that last verse in Revelation, because peanut butter is sin. I, I got, God told me, and it's a revelation, and the Bible is God's revelation, so we better add that in the back and do campaigns, you know, get people to sign petitions, please put in the back of the Bible, in every Bible, peanut butter sin, because they, God told John that. So, as far as Revelation, uh, the Reformed distinction is the Scripture is sufficient. It's enough. It's what we need to guide us in what, what Christianity is. 
Okay, uh, you're going to need to write, jot some notes down. What does soteriology mean? What a great word, huh? It's the doctrine of salvation. How is a person, how can a person know they're going to heaven? This way, you know, you, you can amaze your friends at parties, you know, say, well, do you know what soteriology is? And they'll say, what? Now, the Reformed perspective is uh, Calvinism and uh, as opposed to the Arminian and Pelagian, and that didn't really help you at all, did it? But basically, the Calvinistic understanding of salvation is that man is completely lost and incapable of saving himself, and God is the one that comes and wakes his heart up and helps him to put his faith in Jesus Christ, that God basically raises us from the dead. And when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he didn't say, well, Lazarus, I'll help you some. I will offer a little bit of help, but you need to do your part. No, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus did it all. And that's the Calvinistic understanding of salvation. Uh, we're so lost, we're so gone, so dead, that if God doesn't raise us from the dead, nothing's going to happen. Uh, the Arminian Pelagian view is, is that God does his part, I do my part, we work together, etc. As far as theology, uh, the theology basically means it's the study of who is God. That's theology proper, but theology is used as a, in a broader sense of anything studying of religious stuff, you know, religious truths. What does the Bible say about everything? So that's theology. But the basic understanding of the, of the, of the what does the Bible teach about, about God and his work in the scripture? And our, the, the Reformed approach is a covenantal approach. What that means is that God works through covenants, but he's the same God the whole way through. It wasn't that God was the strict God of the Old Testament and kind of mean and a stern look on his face, but in the New Testament, he's Jesus and a teddy bear and so nice, and so we're trying to get away from the God of the Old Testament. He's, he's evolved, you know, new and improved God, and you like him now. So don't read the Old Testament. You know, that's kind of the old-fashioned old God that we don't like anymore. The covenantal view is God has never changed. God cannot grow, evolve, or improve. All that he is today, he has ever been and always will be, and he's wonderful. That's the covenantal view. Dispensational says, well, God has had these different periods of time, and in each period of time, the basis of salvation changes. So at first, uh, for example, under Moses, you had to do the law, and if you did the law perfectly, then you would be saved. Now, under Jesus, it's, it's grace. So it was like there was a different way of being saved at each period of time, or at each dispensation is, is a word for a period of time. I don't know if you want to jot that down, but it's a, another clunky word that you look away from it, and you look back and says, what was that again? But it's a, it's a period of time, and it's basically saying in each period of time, under Noah, you were saved one way. Under the Mosaic law, you were saved one way. Adam was saved a different way, etc., etc., etc. Whereas covenantal also recognizes, you know, there's a flow of history and everything, but, but God has not changed, and salvation has always been by grace through faith. And so even, even under the Mosaic law or the law of Moses, uh, there was provision made because all have sinned, and they have the whole sacrificial system. And you say, well, you know, could people be saved by taking a lamb and killing it and sprinkling the blood? It says in the New Testament, that never saved anybody. You think, well, why did he get them to do it then? All of those poor animals, you know? Well, in your wallet, you have, I have, and you have too, unless you've cut them all up, a credit card, right? Now, I bought something today, and I handed them a credit card, 
and they let me walk out of the store. I mean, they gave me my credit card back, you know, but I just had to write my name on a piece of paper. No money, no chains, nothing. What is a credit card? Had I paid at that point? No. What had I given them? A promise of payment. That's what the sacrifices were in the Old Testament. It was a credit card. Jesus is coming, and he's going to pay it. Now, they didn't know all the details of that, but they would offer those sacrifices, admitting their sins, confessing their faith in a God who's gracious, that if you take advantage of the provision he has made for salvation, he will be gracious to you and bless you. Okay, let's keep moving here. Flying along. Are we having fun? Cosmology. Cosmology. That's your view of the world. How do you, how do you perceive uh, the way the world is and how the church is to be in the world? And the Reformed view is an all-inclusive worldview that there's not this big wall between the sacred and the secular. We, in the church, we're... We wear a tie and, or sing hymns, and we are nice to each other. And out, outside the church, you can do whatever you want, because that's, you know, that, in the church, you, you better behave yourself, because that's where God lives, you know. And, uh, but outside, well, you know, you got to make a living, and, you know, you can't take things so seriously. And this strong distinction between the sacred and the secular grew up in those Middle Ages where the priests would wear their robes, and they would live in these huge cathedrals and there would be the bells and the smoke and all of these things and then outside it was another world and the distinction between the clergy who were uh, you know kind of up on a pedestal and the big hats and all of these things and then the rest of us little guys you know what do we know and and they of course they would say the whole service in latin so we don't even know what they're saying they wouldn't let them participate in the with the wine that the priests were the only ones that could drink the wine at the so there's this big wall between the, the religious guys or the clergy, the professional guys, and everybody else. And the Reformed understanding is, again, all of this they got just by studying their Bible. Now other, might, other people might disagree with them, but nevertheless, at least you know where they get that from. Where did that come from? It wasn't a tradition. It wasn't just, oh, I think an opinion. They didn't take a poll. Well, how would everybody like? What, what seems good to you? It wasn't a Barna sort of a thing, you know, let's see what everybody thinks, and then vote. It was, let's go back to the Bible. What does the Bible teach? And the Bible teaches what's called the priesthood of all believers. That means that because Jesus Christ lives in you, and you're in him, that you have direct access to God. You don't have to go to another human being to pray. Now, we, we need to come together to celebrate the sacraments and get teaching and everything, but one of the wonderful truths of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers, that in your own home, uh, you can pray to God, and he hears you just as much as he hears Pastor George Crow. You have to take that by faith. But you come not on the merits of a seminary degree, or how much you know, or even how good you've been. You come on the merits only of Jesus Christ. You come in his name. You flash his card when you go to pray. And when the Lord sees that, he says, come. So, an all-inclusive worldview has a higher understanding of work, the value of work. That's why uh, the United States, having been born out of the Reformed tradition, anybody that was a cobbler, they were a cobbler for God. They, were, they didn't make crummy shoes because, well, this isn't a, a spiritual profession, so I don't have to worry about it. Everything you do, if you are in Jesus Christ, is spiritual. 
And so it's, it's uh, if you're a mother at home raising your children, if you're selling insurance, whatever you're doing, you shouldn't do something that's, you know, everybody realizes is a crime. I can't rob banks, you know, to the glory of God. Uh, I am a hitman to the glory of God. No, you can't, you can't do that, you know, obviously. But, but all lawful professions, when done by a believer, are done in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. And it brings God glory. And it exalts a nation. That's part of how we got where we are. That, that you know, you've ever heard the Protestant work ethic? That's cosmology. That's your understanding of the world. That your work, your secular work, is spiritual and counts for God. And if that's your calling, if that's what he's made you to do, it's better for you to do that than for you to go in the ministry. Do you realize how many people think, well, I'm kind of second class because I mean, I don't think I could go in the ministry anyway, but I suppose if I was really committed, I'd, I'd do it, and et cetera. They go through their whole life feeling kind of like this is sort of second rate. It's not second rate. If, if that is what God has called you to do, and sometimes people even feel guilty that they're enjoying their work. It says, well, you know, gosh, I, I'm just selling insurance, and it's just so worldly, but I, I, just, I just love helping people this way, et cetera, et cetera. I love making money and giving money away and stuff like that. God says, great, you know. You're doing what I made you to do. Now, if God then calls you to the ministry, that's fine too. It's not that one is better than the other. It's that you, God has made you to do a particular thing. Do you realize what a mess we'd have if everybody tried to go in the ministry? You're already in the ministry if you're in Jesus Christ. Now, you may not be doing anything, but you're in it. Polity. Oh, my goodness. I still don't like that word. Some of these words, I sort of have an allergy, but these are the words they use so that, again when you're at the party and want to amaze your friends. Polity means, how do you govern the church? How do you decide, as a church, if you're going to change the color of the sanctuary to mauve? You know, how are those decisions going to be made? And the, the form of the, in the Catholic Church was episcopal, and that comes from the Greek episkopos, which, which we, our English translation is bishops. It means that you have your congregations and you have a pastor over each congregation and then over that you have a, like a zone leader that's a bishop okay and so and then the, there's kind of a cardinal over the bishop and you have a, a pyramidal structure authority structure and the guy at the top pretty much has the say but the reformed understanding as they went back to the bible says it looks to us like all the congregations were elder led and since sin corrupts we don't see a monarchical structure here of, of bishops over bishops over bishops and finally a pope and all of that kind of stuff. That's something that kind of grew like barnacles on the ship uh, as the church grew. But if you just had the New Testament, you'd come up, our point of view anyway, <laughs> you'd come up with the Presbyterian representative form of government, which is not democratic. Why? What's the difference between the way we govern the church and democracy, pure democracy? What's democracy mean, originally? Government by the people, right? So if you ever have uh, an issue to decide, are we going to paint the church purple, uh, you'd just get all the people in there and you'd have a vote. That would be pure democracy. That's, and that's what's called congregational. Okay, you get it? You get all the congregation in, you vote. What has always been the key weakness of pure democracy and why most people are afraid of it, if they know what it is? It 
assumes that 80% of the population aren't dummies, do read, do think for themselves independently, but the vast majority of the human race don't. And so what happens? You get somebody with the gift of gab who can come in and inflame the masses, and then they just put it to a vote, and there's a French Revolution, or there's, you know, who knows what, when the children of Israel we're going to go into the promised land, they send the 12 spies in, they come back, there's a bad report, says, I don't know if we can do this, and the whole congregation says, let's stone Moses. That was democracy, until God stepped in. And uh, the, the, what's different with the Presbyterian form, or the representative form, is, is that uh, you have the involvement of the whole congregation, but not in all of the decisions, in big decisions you do, you know, you get their input too but you let the whole congregation choose people to represent them. It's the way our government's set up. They don't put every single thing up to a vote of all the United States. And it's a good thing they don't. It's, as in, in, it's inefficient enough as the way we do it, but it would be re even more inefficient. But not only that, it would be dangerous because a lot of issues are complicated. And so the, the way decisions are made in a Presbyterian church is you... Uh, the congregation elects representatives called elders and they meet together and they make make the decision again all of these things this is what they came up with as they looked at what does the bible say about all of these different areas if we only had the bible what conclusions would we draw liturgy my goodness thought we'd be done with these terrible words but Episcopalians love this word, by the way. Uh, any old Episcopalians here or young Episcopalians? Former Episcopalians? Uh, I was raised Episcopalian, you know, and uh, that's a liturgical church. Any, can anybody give us some light on this strange term? What? They use a prayer book. Uh, they've kind of written it all out. How, how do you, if you're going to baptize a baby, say these words? Now, uh, if you if you like liturgy, you know it's very comforting. It's beautifully written, uh, the Book of Common Prayer by Cranmer. And I was raised, I was bored to death as a teenager, but I just didn't like repetition of any any kind. I didn't not them particularly. I just didn't like any repetition. But for other people that like things a little more spontaneous, it's a little too much like the hokey pokey. Put your left foot here, put your right foot here, and shake your hand all about. You know, you you always do it the same way and say the same things and stuff like that. You know, some some of those are just different tastes or preferences. But without getting into any details, liturgy is basically, what are you going to do in the worship service? If you want to just jot down a little phrase there that will help you remember what does liturgy mean, it's what are, you, what are you going to do when you meet together for church? What are you going to do? Sing kumbaya, blow up balloons, you know. How, do you, how are you going to decide? What if somebody comes in and says, well, I think we ought to one time just come in and, and you know, we're the salt of the earth, so I think we should all just bring salt. And we could each do, let's see, we could do salt dances, and we could sprinkle salt around. And there's a church in, in uh, Brazil that has, um, they do a path out of salt, and supposedly if you walk on this path, God will bless you. They sell their own little bottles of holy oil. They have special roses that have been prayed over and hand those out. That's all part of their worship service. They see, the Reformed understanding of, of worship is that we just do whatever the Bible says we should do. That sounds kind of simple, doesn't it? 
It does kind of limit things. I mean, you're not supposed to do all the things I just said, because why? The Bible doesn't say it. I mean, if you want to walk outside afterwards and do whatever you want with salt or roses, that's fine. But don't, don't be doing this thinking that you're necessarily going to make God happy. He's told us how to make him happy. So let's just do what he said. Let me explain to you what the, well, first, this was, uh, whatever is not prohibited is allowed. That was, the, you can just write, write beside that, write Lutheran. This was Luther's way of approaching the worship service. He says, anything that the Bible doesn't say don't do, you could do. Doesn't mention balloons. If you want to blow up balloons, blow up balloons to the glory of God. That's the Lutheran position. The reform position is called the regulative principle with apologies, again, for obtuse language. But it means how do you regulate the worship service? How do you, again, how do you decide what to do? And you might want to just jot it in here. Whatever is not commanded is prohibited. That is the regulative principle. Very short. You can just jot it in there. You'll, then you'll always have it on your handy-dandy cheat sheet. Whatever is not commanded is prohibited. So what did he command? The reading of the scripture, preaching of the gospel, praying of prayers, thanksgiving, singing hymns. There are lots of things. You've got plenty to do. Don't worry about it. You know, you, you, can, you can do the balloons later. And uh, the giving of, all, of tithes and offerings. Does it sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like our bulletin? You know, I mean, you know, as far as a different, it could be a different order and stuff, but that's what we do. But why do we do it? Because that's what we've understood, that the Bible says, do that. That's kind of simple, isn't it? Now, some people just really like novelty, and, you know, they feel a little restricted in, in Reformed Presbyterian churches. But, you know, we just, we, it's like you've got a fixed menu, you know. You've either got beef or chicken, and you've got green beans, and, you know, you've got a, a limited number of items on the menu, but you just work with different recipes. So, I mean, you can, you can make it go great, you know. Okay, liturgy. Here we go. Last one, sacraments. That means those things we do, you know, we only have two. So it's, we're talking about baptism and, and communion. Lord's Supper, Eucharist. You know why they call it Eucharist, by the way? I mean, we don't, but I mean, we could. Eucharist is Greek for I give thanks. Sacraments. And this was a big deal back in the beginning of the Reformation because the Catholics had believed, oh my goodness, well, we'll finish off with a couple of great big words. Transubstantiation. Anybody want to tell us what that means? Yes, into what? Into his literal body and blood. That's why uh, Luther, before he became a Protestant, I don't know if he agreed with that phrase, but anyway, before all of the mess began, when he was celebrating his first communion, he'd just gotten his training as a priest, and he's doing communion, and his dad has come to watch him, and his dad didn't want him to go in the ministry anyway. And he's there, and he's celebrating the Mass, and at the point, you know, they have one point where supposedly it happens, you know, that it really literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And he freaked out. He thought, good grief, what if I drop Jesus, you know, and, and a crumb of Jesus is on the floor, it's desecrated, I'm sure going to hell now, you know. And he, he just, he left. He walked out in the middle of, of the service. He couldn't take the pressure. Transubstantiation means it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Consubstantiation means, well, it doesn't literally become the body and blood, but it's sort of around there somewhere. It's over, under, around. Um, it's like one of those cigarette filters. Over, under, around, and through, you know, pell-mell thing. That's old. Oh, it shows my age, doesn't it? That's probably 20 years ago. 
but uh, the, the, the body and blood literally is there somewhere. It doesn't actually change into it, but it's kind of close. And then on the other extreme, you have uh, the Baptistic sort of a view that it's just only a memorial. It's just uh, something we do to remember that Jesus died for us. But the Reformed view, again, trying to uh, simply say, what, but what does the Bible say? Um, is the what you could call the spiritual presence. That Jesus Christ himself is literally communicated to you by faith. Not, it's not in the elements, but in your heart by faith. That when you rightly partake of the bread and the wine uh, with the reading of the scriptures and the prayers and as Christ instituted it, that in your heart you literally really partake in some way we can't explain of the true presence of Jesus Christ. That's kind of neat, isn't it? Anyway, well that's our overview of that. How many of you have heard of this flower? as relating to theology. Now, a lot of times, Reformed theology is presented simply as the, this thing on the, the five points of Calvinism, the tulip, etc. If you've never heard of that before, don't worry about it. Millions of other people have not heard about it. This came back historically. There was a guy named Jacobus Arminius, who lived, died right in the beginning of 1600s, and he thought all the stuff we're about to look at, he didn't like it. And so he came up with an alternative view that man really isn't all that bad, and, and God expects him to do his part of his salvation, and, and uh, God does the best he can, but then you've got to kind of fill in the rest, etc. That's probably not totally fair, but that's, that's basically the, the gist of where he was going with that. And he had five points. It, it was called the remonstrance. And the church considered it all, but really felt like, no, but that's just not what the Bible teaches. And they came up with the opposing five points, answering this theologian, who'd already died by that time, but anyway, his followers. And those five points are summarized in the tulip. So let's just kind of go over this. The T is for total depravity, and what that means is that man is completely incapable within himself to reach out towards God. Man is totally at enmity with God. So he's, the Bible pictures man as an, as an enemy of God, as, as a beast. He, the Bible also pictures us as dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1. The second point is unconditional election. And as some have said, with total depravity, it's such a strong term, you know, to think, Depravity? I mean, are you, are you talking about me? I, I have, I'm, I mean, I know I, you know, I stole lunch money sometimes, and I was a little bit mean to my sister sometimes. I've, I've been trying, you know, and, and uh, it just sounds so strong. Total depravity. What this means is uh, better than total, because it doesn't mean that you have been as bad as you could be. Oh, no, you could have been much worse. Even Hitler probably somehow could have been worse than he was. It does not mean that you've been as bad as you could be, but it does mean that you're in a condition that you are beyond helping yourself in the same way that a dead person is no longer capable of walking. Even if you believe in them and you encourage them, 
come on now, I know you can do it. You know, they don't move, they're dead, they can't. The second point is unconditional election or sovereign election, which means God is the one that has decided in all past eternity those that will eventually come to him. He has chosen those who will be saved. You've heard the term predestination. And we're going to, these are, some of the things I'm raising, some of you haven't thought about before, and so you didn't have problems with Reformed theology before, but you got them now. So we're, that's what this class is about, so don't worry, we're going to wrestle with it some. But again, why did they come up with these things? They didn't come up with these things thinking, oh, what can we do to make Christianity difficult? What can we do to make people feel like worms so that they will behave? Their only question was, what does the Bible say? And once we get that, then we'll try to deal with it. Okay? First, let's define what, what does the Bible say? What's reality? And then I need to try to understand what's going on here, what, you know, uh, and what does God want me to do? Unconditional election is there is absolutely no condition in any person for which God would save him. It's not as though God looks ahead in eternity and says, well, these are the ones that once I touch their lives, they're going to behave, so I'll pick them. And these others, even if I'd have tried to help them, they'd be a lost cause, so let's just leave them where they are. It was completely unconditional, without any foreseen merit in us. He says, well, you're going to be a good boy, so I'll pick you. Like, I, I know this is going to be a good investment, so I'll invest here. It's a good investment because he invested in it, not the other way around. The third one is usually the hardest one. If people say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, this is the one they, they want to leave out. Limited atonement. As some have said, it's better, uh, there are other terms that are better, it's just that this, doing, using these words, it makes it where you can say the flower. Like, oh, it's a really big deal, isn't it, you know? But anyway, acrostics are, that you can say and remember are helpful, but in this case, uh, limited atonement is, is a little bit misleading, but it, uh, let's read what it says and I'll explain it. Uh, God, in his infinite mercy, in order to accomplish the planned redemption, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute for the sins of a large but specific number of people. His, by limited, we don't mean that it couldn't have saved everybody. It's, uh, his death was sufficient for everyone, but it was efficient only for those that God had chosen. It only worked on those that he had already chosen. When it said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not all people, his people. Uh, the eye is irresistible grace, and this is taught, well, let's see, this is the effectual work, or the effective work of the Holy Spirit moving upon a particular person whom he has called, applying the work of redemption. So, in time, it comes time for you to become a Christian, and, but you're dead in sin. You know, if someone preaches the gospel to you, but even with that, you could not possibly respond, according to the scripture anyway, because you're dead in sin. So God wakes you up, and then all of a sudden, don't you remember that maybe just one year before you became a Christian, you could, you didn't believe that stuff, you know, and you were, you avoided people that thought that way. And then all of a sudden, one day, it was like, it was your time, and now it kind of sounds kind of cool, you know, and then you really got into it. Well, what happened? It was God extended an invisible, inaudible, irresistible call, and he said, come. You didn't hear, you didn't, you thought it was your idea. They say, 
uh, the, the door over heaven, it says, whosoever will may come. And that's true. Jesus said, if anybody comes to me, I won't turn them away. It's not as though you're not on the list, you can't come in. No, no, anybody that comes, you can come. And then he walked through the door into heaven, and over the door it says, chosen from the foundations of the earth. And so we're not saying we really understand all these things. We're just saying this is what it seems like the Bible is saying. Irresistible grace. And the last thing is, if God is doing it, then it's going to happen. The perseverance of the saints, that if God has started a good work in you, he is going to finish it. And I tell you what, as you get to know yourself and your proclivity to sin, you think, man, if this depended on my performance, and God is perfect, I'm already sunk. There's one denomination, not reformed, that believes if you sin again after you're baptized, and you have to be baptized in their church as an adult or you can't be saved, but if you sin again after that baptism, you're going to hell. That's it. It's over for you. And so one person writing about that church said, tongue-in-cheek, says the only way they can be assured of their salvation is if someone drowns them when they baptize them. Just hold them under. <laughs> The perseverance of the saints, this is the gracious work of God's sanctification where he's making you, that whole, sanctification means holification, you're being made holy, being made like Jesus. The gracious work of God's sanctification whereby he enables a saved person to persevere to the end. Once he gets you started, you're going to finish, so rest in him. Even though the process of sanctification is not complete in this life, from God's perspective, it is as good as accomplished because God sees the end from the beginning. So God has this great dream of you that's a reality. And so even though you kind of have your ups and downs and, and sometimes it looks like you're, you're kind of got dry rot and barnacles and all these things and you think by this time I should have you know, been a lot further along but I'm kind of like Lazarus, by this time he stinketh, you know. And, and um, you know, I wonder, how, maybe God's disappointed with me now. Maybe he wouldn't have picked me if he'd have realized I was going to do it. No. God already knew everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And he chose us completely irregardless of any merit in us. And, he, and the Bible says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So in God's mind, it's already done. In God's mind, it's only a matter of the passing of time here on earth. And the moment of your absolute perfection is drawing every second closer. So you've got a sin, a besetting sin that you've been struggling with. And it's like you're just, it's so discouraging. Uh, some sin of the flesh, some sin of the mind, some sin of worry, eating, sex, whatever it is. And you think, it's been years. And you need to remind yourself, day by day, it's only a matter of time. God will soon crush Satan under my feet. I will be victorious. Not because of me. He will do it. And the weaker it seems I am, praise the Lord, because the more glory God will get. Now, it doesn't mean I... I sin because of that. No, I, I, I really, I mean, you want victory. You want purity. I mean, you have your moments when you get kind of crazy and, and who knows what you want, you know. But when you're in your right mind, when you haven't turned into Mr. Hyde, you're Dr. Jekyll, you know. You're, you're calm, cool, collected, and you think, man, that was awful last night, what I did, you know. What came over me? And uh, what, can God forgive me? No, he who began a good, he's, he's, he's on track. There is no plan B. This is plan A, and he's going to do it. And you will be just like Jesus Christ. Every, when we get through this hour, you'll be one hour closer. 
Hang in there just a little bit longer. That's the perseverance of the saints. Now let's look at these the five areas of the boxes over on the right, and let's look at what, what that's talking to us about. The first box just talks to us about our inability. Well, we're pretty convinced of that anyway, aren't we? I mean, we're just not all that good at being perfect. We're very, we're incapable. The second thing is God's choice, and that's the idea that God, God is sovereign. He is in control. Uh, being all-powerful and knowing all things, how could it be any way, other way? Third, it's, limited atonement is just talking about the nature of Christ's work. The nature of the atonement, it was, it was, he died as a substitution, he died in our place, and he died, when he died, since our names were already written in his heart, he died for us, he died for his people. The fourth one is, well, how did that end up getting to me? You know, you, you, you bought the thing online, it's who knows where in the United States, because they don't tell you online where that uh, warehouse is located. But somehow it's got to get to your front door. How was it delivered? And how did salvation get to you? It was the Spirit's call. John, you couldn't hear him, but your heart heard it. And you woke up. And you thought it was your idea. But then you go and read the Bible and says, oh, it was his idea. That's encouraging. Because if it was just your idea, and then you go into your struggles and everything, you think, oh, this is just so discouraging. But if you think, no, he started it, didn't he? That's what it says. And if he said, John, and I woke up, then he's planning on finishing with me. Lift up your head, your redemption draweth not. And then the last thing, our security. Do you realize every, that's why the assurance of salvation, that's the ground you stand on. If every day you wonder, like with the daisy, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, you think you're going to be able to accomplish much for God? I mean, you're back at the very beginning. Do I stand? Do I fall? Do I stand? Do I fall? But if you're on this bedrock solid thing, I am loved, I am secure, now and forever, you're free from yourself. And you can give and love and serve because you don't have to spend all your time trying to figure out where you stand with God. You're in Jesus Christ. He's hidden you away in Jesus. So that when you come into your prayer time in the name of Jesus, what does he see? He sees it's like you were Jesus coming in. How do you think God would receive Jesus coming into his presence? My beloved son. God says, I've worked it out so that you can get that kind of treatment. Haven't you ever gotten on a plane and walked by those first class seats? Good grief, you're thinking, well, maybe I can get an upgrade someday, you know, but you know, most of the time you just walk right past them, you know? And God says, I have worked it out where you who are so unworthy, so weak, so at times even wicked, and so disappointing to yourself and at times to others, I've worked it out where somebody else took everything, all the punishment that you were due, and all the shame and guilt and everything. And now I've got this disguise for you. And when you come in and you pray in the name of Jesus, he says, I receive you as though you were Jesus. And so you know what God's face looks like when you come to pray and talk to him? He's got a smile on his face. And if you know that God loves you and he sees you and his heart goes a quiver for you, and he says, oh, come. 
Come get a, get a little closer. Climb up on my lap. Let's talk. Just you're tired. Just lean your head up on here. It's a, it, you don't need a liturgy or a, or a prayer book or something. It's it's like a, a foretaste of heaven, being with him, and knowing that he loves you that much, and that anything that you're lacking now, he's eventually going to take care of. Tears, he's going to wipe them away. Sins, he's going to conquer it. Any problem with Satan in your life, he's going to crush it under your feet. You were born to win if you're if you're in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in him? He's got great plans for you. Let's close in prayer. Well, Lord, a lot of these truths are kind of heavy and generate even more questions, but that's okay. Uh, I pray that we'd be like the Berean Christians. I forgot to read this verse before, but in, in Acts chapter 17, 11, it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, these believers, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Lord, these things are not true because the Presbyterians teach them or our church teaches them. They are true if and only if they represent what the scripture teaches. And we just pray that these things would spur us on to wonder and ask questions, but more than anything, that they would spur us on to worship, to develop our relationship with you. You didn't save us to be eggheads of theology. You saved us to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ. So we ask you to sweep us up once more in your everlasting embrace and whisper words of love in our heart and encourage us and use us to touch a broken world. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.